This is Duke University. I honestly can think of no better person to kick off this event than Martin Eakes. This is a huge coup for us to have him here today. Just to give you a little bit of context on Martin's background, one thing that is particularly resonates with me as the managing director of CASE is Martin is, at his heart, through and through, a social entrepreneur. In 1980, he started self-help. He started with a small bake sale that garnered $77. And he was driving around with $77 in his pocket and in his old car and went to different communities in rural and uh, urban North Carolina and was working with them to help develop worker cooperatives amongst the minority populations. From that beginning, he started, uh, the, that laid the foundation of what became a lending institution and what is now known as the Center for Community Self-Help. Since that time, self-help has given out over $3.9 billion in financing to over 43,000 organizations and individuals across the country. It's now an organization that itself has about a billion dollars in assets. That's an incredibly powerful example of social entrepreneurship. Self-help has done that, and Martin Eakes has been their visionary leader from day one. He's been awarded numerous accolades and honors for that. Most notably, in 1996, he was named the MacArthur Genius Award. But in addition to being a social entrepreneur, and like so many social entrepreneurs, Martin is a cross-sector leader. He's obviously a leader in the nonprofit sector and a leader in the field of economic development. But what's really interesting to note is that in recent years, he's become a leader that's respected and looked to by both business and government. Many of you hopefully saw the Wall Street Journal article last July. The headline said, when Martinique speaks, Citigroup listens. There are not many nonprofit executives that can make that claim. And it went on to say how he had moved from being, you know, somewhat of this idealistic nonprofit leader coming out of the civil rights movement to a pragmatic, influential fig figure in the $8 trillion home mortgage industry. That's impressive. He's a nonprofit leader who's also leaving business. But he also extends his leadership into the public sector. He's testified in front of Congress. The Center for Community Self-Help has also set up the Center for Responsible Lending, which is a lobbying and research arm. They're taking on predatory lending practices and are really cutting new ground and new territory at the public policy level as well at the business and nonprofit level. He's a cross-sector leader and someone to be admired. Bringing this a little bit closer to home, Martin is a friend and a partner to Duke. He's been integral, uh, an integral player in the Duke-Durham Neighborhood Partnership which was a strategic initiative of the campus that started over a decade ago. In the last decade, Duke and Self-Help in partnership have purchased and rehabilitated 60 homes and sold them to first-time homeowners in low-wealth communities immediately surrounding the, the uh, Duke campus. 25 of those first-time homeowners are actual Duke employees. This is an incredible partnership and something that is not that common amongst kind of universities and the town-gown relationships and would not have happened without the leadership of both Duke and Martin. Just last year, the Duke Board of Trustees approved another $4 million in loan to self-help to help them continue that work, and they currently have title to 40 more houses in these surrounding areas. They've done this in partnership with Habitat for Humanity, with the Center for Community Land Trust, with many of the nonprofit organizations, but self-help and Duke have really been at the lead. So he's been a partner and a friend to Duke. Now, what does all of this mean to you? As I look out, I see a lot of eager first-year students, some a little bit cynical, but still eager second-year students. And um, see, everyone in this room is going to be an alumni of Duke at some point, very soon, sooner than you realize. And we hope that as you become alumni of Duke, you will also become friends and partners of Duke in our mission to educate and in a partnership for lifelong learning, but also in giving back, in giving back to Duke, and giving back to your communities, and in giving back in your professional life. Many of you will become business leaders. We also hope that some of you, if not most of you, will become leaders across sectors, not just in the business community, but in the nonprofit and public sectors as well. And maybe, just maybe, a few of you in the audience will actually dedicate your lives to becoming social entrepreneurs. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Martin Eakes. Good afternoon. 
Not only did she promise you inspiration, she then went on to tell my story a little bit better than I do. And if I had known that the introduction was going to be a eulogy, I would have done the decent thing and died before I got here. <laughs> you can't imagine how much I am glad to speak in a Southern context. I know not all of you are Southerners. In fact, who, who here considers themselves Southerners? <laughs> all right, but a minority. So I used to think I was this really plain speaking person, no accent, until I decided I was going to go to law school in New York City. I drove up in my old Buick, got out, and ordered a roast beef sandwich at this street side deli in New York City. And the guy at the counter looked at me and he says, Sonny, hold it right there. Don't say another word. He says, Pete, come out here. You've got to hear this. This is the damnedest thing you've ever heard. So he gets out there and he says, now say it again. I ordered again. And he looked at me. He says, my God, you must be from the deep south. And I said, well, yeah. He says, are you from Delaware? <laughs> it's a little bit embarrassing to give speeches up north, which I do sometimes. And I ask people when they can't understand what I'm saying, I said, should I speak a little bit slower? And they said, please, God, no. Please speak a little <laughs> bit faster. So I'm proud of being a Southerner, and at least for two years, you're going to be a Southerner here in Durham as well. I tell people I was educated and raised in the South, uh, raised my children here, and when I die, I want to make sure that I have a good Southern Baptist minister presiding over my funeral. And the reason for that is I know that way I will get at least one or two or three extra hours before I have to pass on. The message I want to talk about today, which I think is really relevant to business, although you might have some question, is what I call the importance of servant leadership. And I call it servant rather than service leadership because I think that that conveys an essence of humility. I read recently a quote that said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. My thesis is that servant leadership means just being there in times of need. And for me, being there when needed is not really a master plan for life, but really a recognition that your greatest contribution will come at some unexpected moment when you are least prepared in the course of an ordinary day. I've got two more stories I want to tell you before I get all serious on you. The first one is about a campaign, and since we're always in political season, it seems like it is somewhat relevant. I think it was 1988. Ted Kennedy was campaigning for what proved to be a really nasty Senate campaign. His opponent held his press conference, and he says, you know, Senator Kennedy should not be elected because he has never worked a real job in his whole day. He's never worked a single day in a real job his whole life. Well, Senator Kennedy, needless to say, was very offended, and the next day when he was politicking, shaking hands in front of a factory gate, this woman started to address him and said about that quote from yesterday, and the senator was about to interrupt her, and she went on and said, I just wanted you to know you haven't missed a damn thing. Haven't worked a single day in a real job? It's okay. And what he said, and what she said was, the important thing is you are here with us now. And the moral being there, even if you're a little bit late, is really important. One more story. There was this young man who showed up for jury duty as instructed by the written notice he had received. He was very agitated and fidgeting, restless, until he couldn't wait any longer. He jumped up and addressed the judge. He says, Your Honor, you have to excuse me. I just can't stay here any longer. The judge looked at him and said, Well, what's the problem? And the young man said, Well, my wife, at this very moment, is at the hospital conceiving a baby. The judge looked at the young man and with some empathy said, he says, you mean that your wife is delivering a baby, right? And the young juror with great vehemence said, no, I mean she is conceiving a baby. And the judge just shook his head. He looked at him. He says, young man, I'm going to make an exception and excuse you because either way, you need to be there. My mother used to have this quote. Her quote was, if you have the vision to see a problem, you have the duty to help solve it. 
If you have the vision to see a problem, you have the duty to help solve it. Well, here I am, someone who can't get to work with two socks that match, and yet I was born with this gift of being able to see problems and solutions, and my mother's curse or gift of saying, you have the duty to help solve them. And that's what we've tried to do through self-help's work for the last 25 years. When I finished law school and graduate school in public policy in 1980, I had had approximately 21 years that I considered educating the mind, including kindergarten, which may have been the most important of those years. But I'd had hardly a, a single moment of what I call educating the heart. So my wife and I started self-help in 1980, blissfully ignorant, but very idealistic. We believed that the legal phase of the civil rights movement had largely been completed, but that it would make absolutely no difference whatsoever if it didn't translate into economic opportunities. I tell this story, and everyone, Beth mentioned the $77 bake sale. Everyone at Self-Health gets subjected to this story numerous times because it tells some of the values that we try to carry forth in our work. When we first moved back to North Carolina from law school, I was studying to take the bar exam, and we drew this little brochure. My wife drew it, and while she has real artistic talent, this was one of the ugliest brochures I have ever seen. It was yellow, had the picture of farm implements on the front of it. It was really bad. We sent it around. I think we had money to print all of 100, sent them around. I'm studying to take the bar exam. I think I'm 25 years old. Who here, is, who here is under 25 years old? Okay, so you were, there are not many of you who were as, as young and green as I was at that time. We sent these brochures out, and I get this call, and the person says, I've got your brochure, and we'd like you to come speak to it. My first question was, well, how'd you get it? I mean, there aren't but 100 of them. He says, we need you to come down and sp speak to a small group of us in Newburn, North Carolina, on the coast, and help us with a problem we've got. And your brochure that says you're going to help individual employees start businesses is just what we need. So I jumped in my little blue Volkswagen bug and drive, it's about three hours, to the coast of North Carolina. I pull into the parking lot of the high school where he had told me to arrive, and I look around, it's about five to six o'clock at night, and there's something unsettling because the parking lot in this high school is completely full of cars. I get out and I go to the gymnasium and walk in and sure enough, I know where those 500 cars uh, were going. There were 500 workers from a textile mill that had shut down the previous Friday and all of their family members. And I was introduced as the person that was going to save their jobs, 500 jobs. And I got up there and if you, you know, no one really quite believes this, but I'm this really deep introvert. I stood up there, and I've never been more terrified in my whole life than looking out over this crowd that's about five to ten times the size of this group with all of the, uh, all the family members. And they basically told me their story of how in eastern North Carolina, if you're 55 years old, you're a female, you happen to be a person of color, that there is no one who will come and take care of you if you don't take your economic future into your own hands. And they were saying, we want to reestablish this plant, and we're willing to take our retirement funds and purchase the factory in order to keep it open. And I'm standing there as a 25-year-old, and I said, I have no clue whether this makes sense or not, but I will try to help you. I drove back to Greensboro, which was the corporate headquarters for this textile company, and drove in to the, uh, to the headquarters, went to the CEO's office, okay? For those of you who've worked for CEOs and, and aspire to be one, you can think about how silly this was. I drove in, went straight to the reception desk, and said, I need to see the, see the CEO, and I need to see him right now. And the woman looked at me, and she said, well, do you have an appointment? I said, no. She said, well, he's not going to see you. And I looked at her, and I said, finally, a situation that I've really been trained for. I looked at her and said, do you know I've read every book that Martin Luther King ever wrote? I've read everything that Gandhi ever wrote, and I had this really unique but bizarre characteristic that I can go up to 10 days without eating. <laughs> and I'm going to sit in his office here for up to 10 days, if that's what it takes, 
before he meets with me. This was 9.30 in the, in the morning. And they let me wait until 7 o'clock that night. And really, he couldn't get out. I mean, I was in his office. It was one of those offices that didn't have two exits. So he finally comes out, and he says, well, Martin, you know, come back here, and I'll talk to you. And he took about 20, 30 minutes and explained to me that the factory that I was concerned with made yarn that went into a particular type of slacks. Now, there are only a few of you. Sam, you're old enough. Where is he? Yeah, there are a few of you who will remember this phase, but in the late 70s, there was this fad of double-knit, polyester, bell-bottom slacks. Now, none of you remember that, do you? Bell-bottom, the Mod Squad. The... Okay, well, that was the yarn being made by this plant. So if there was ever a plant that deserved to shut down, <laughs> this was it. There simply was no market for the goods anymore. So I drove back in my my bug, went to Newburn, met in the high school gymnasium again with a thousand people, and said, this is the wrong place for you to put your life savings as an investment. There is a reason it shut down. As I came into the meeting, a community organizer met me and he said, Martin, your job here, do not, you, you, do not dare tell them what you learned. Your job is to inspire hope in these workers, not to tell them what you learned. Okay, I'm a 25-year-old idealist, and I looked at him, and I said, my job is to tell them the truth and let them make a good choice. It's not to inspire false hope. He and I never really stayed friends after that, but I think I was right. I think that my role and your role as a business person is to tell people the truth. I went in, I delivered the bad news, I'm about to leave, and this group of 15 people surrounded me, and they said, we're not quite done with you yet. And this one fellow came up to me, he has a beard that's about down to his waist, he's 58, almost 60 years old. He looked like my image of a, of a Latin American revolutionary. And he looked at me and he spoke with this very gentle voice, he says, and he stuttered a little bit, he says, my lifetime dream has been to start a small commercial bakery. He says, I was a baker on a naval ship in World War II, which is where I became disabled. And my dream my whole life has been to run a bakery, and you're going to help us. I looked at him, I said, I don't know anything about baking except that I really do love donuts. <laughs> he said, well, that's qualification enough. And we spent the next year putting together business plans. This is 1981, before the time of PC computers. We did business plans on little ledger sheets. There were no spreadsheets. Uh, VisiCalc was about to be invented the next year. And we went to seven different banks and got turned down at every bank for the loan capital to start this small bakery. I finally succeeded in getting a $4,000 no, $4, $4 to $10,000, I think it was a $10,000 grant from the state of North Carolina to the town of Newburn, which on a 3-2 vote, three white to two black, decided they would rather turn the funds back over to the state of North Carolina rather than use this capital to help a minority business in Newburn. This is 1981. I know that my daughter is here. I know that seems like uh, dinosaur age, but it's not that long ago. So I thought we were about to give up. And finally, this same guy, he looks up and he says, I'm not giving up yet. I want you to come see my backyard. He takes me to the fence in his backyard and he has a thousand containers of orange bottles that have liquid carpet cleaner. He says, I'm going to sell liquid carpet cleaner door to door if that's what it takes to raise the capital to start my bakery. I'm like, okay. He calls me about a month later and says, I'm coming to the VA hospital here at Duke, and I'd like you to come see me. This guy's about, you know, I'm 25, he's 55 to 60, so he's almost like my grandfather. And I said, yes, I'll come visit you. I go in the hospital, and he asks me, he, he, he beckons me, he's flat on his back. He says, come up near me. And I went up close to him, he reached up, still flat on his back, still groggy from the anesthesia of the surgery where they had checked to see whether a polyp was cancerous or not. And he pulled me, pulled me down real close to him and he says, if you can help me get $4,000 more, I can start my bakery. The whole time he'd been under the knife, the dream that had kept him going was this thought about starting his own small business. At that stage, self-help had an entire total budget of $7,500 per year. We went back and took 4,000 of our salary funds. There were four or five of us working. So do the math on that one and figure out uh, 
what the early years of entrepreneurship may look like. <laughs> we made the loan $4,000. He started the bakery, and the very first cake off the production line, he came and raffled at an event about this size for $77. He brings the $77 to me, hands it to me with this, I'm expecting this eloquent statement. He says, Martin, I give you this $77 so that no person ever again, because of the color of their skin, their wealth, or where they happen to be located, will ever have to sell carpet cleaner ever again to start their business. And that's the beginning of the self-help credit union, the first $77 of capital. I now say, well, it's like tens of millions of bake sales later, we've grown to be a billion dollars in assets. Self-help is now the largest nonprofit community development lending organization in the nation. And in terms of net worth and assets, it's, it's larger by a factor of three or four times than all of the other peer groups that we have. I'd like to tell you that was because I'm so brilliant, but I've already told you I can barely get to work uh, on time, much less with my belt and my socks both intact. So I mention it not to say that self-help has these brilliant people, which we do, but to say that this is an example of just being there and what a difference it can make. I realized how inspiring that story could be in other parts of the country when I did a workshop in Milwaukee. And after a day of talking about bylaws and really technical, detailed things, this working class guy stood up and he looked at me and he says, you know, I know there are all these incredible examples in Massachusetts and California, New Jersey, exotic places. He says, you know, I'll be damned if North Carolina should be ahead of us in anything. And I looked at him and I said, well, I." I think that was meant as a compliment, and that's the way I'm going to choose to take it. I basically learned two things that I want to tell you about. The first is that you really can't understand race and wealth in America. You can't understand race in America without understanding wealth in America. And I tell people, in self-help's early years, we had no intention of becoming lenders. We just couldn't get capital for the businesses, whether it was our small bakery or the 40 additional small businesses that we worked with in those early years from traditional banks. In my early days, I thought all bankers were racists. And I continued to think that until I got a pool of my own capital. A foundation gave us $90,000 and we loaned it out to three businesses. And all three businesses failed really quickly. They didn't wait a year where I could say, well, conditions changed, Greenspan really mucked up the economy. You know, it was like, Martin, you're really not nearly as smart as you thought you were, and those banker friends of yours, they're not nearly as stupid as you thought they were either. And so we learned that there has to be this combination of idealism and really hard-nosed pragmatism of how to make an enterprise or a business work. During that time, what we discovered was one fact that continues to just drive me crazy. It, it is, I think, the most socially unacceptable statistic in a great nation. When we learned that African-American families and Latino families have exactly one-tenth the wealth, on average, for median, that white families have, you have to ask yourself, why exactly is that? One-tenth, so the median wealth at that time for, uh, for black families was about $4,000. For white families, it was $44,000. And then we found that over 65% of the wealth of families, white, black, Hispanic, Asian, of all different shades and colors, was held in the equity in people's homes. We started becoming interested in home ownership. And during that first 10 years, self-help started making home loans, mostly to single mothers who led, who had children and lived in minority communities. Out of the first thousand loans, take a guess how much losses I had. I mean, what do you think? 5%, 10%, who, who wants to make a guess? Okay, you can't be asleep yet, let's hear it. What's your, what's your guess? 10%, 30%, who else? 20%. Seventy percent. Who else? Two percent. Who else? Okay, here's the answer. We had not a single loss. 
Not a single loss on a single loan in 10 years to more than 1,000 minority mothers whom, whom no other institution would make a loan to. Okay, now what did that tell you? Number one, the market does not always work, which means there are opportunities for social entrepreneurship. The market was not working in this particular sector. By the end of those 10 years, I had a number of the families we had made loans to come back to us and say, I need to borrow against the increased value in my home in order to start a small business or to send my children to college. Now for us, that was the essence of real economic development. And so what we found was that income gives a family or an individual the freedom to make short-term choices, what you buy for food, what you buy for clothing, but family wealth gives you the, the choice to make long-term investments. I tell this story about a self-help borrower who came to a, an annual meeting of ours. She stood up. She said, I want to tell my story about getting a loan for a home loan at self-help. She says, I am now 53 years old. I've raised two children to adulthood. Both of my parents were alcoholic. I have worked since I was 14 years old in a nine to five job. I've never missed a week from 14 to 53. And she says, I've never been able to own my own home. And I was able to get this home loan from self-help and buy my first house. It was really exciting. And I went into the house with the keys the very first night. And what do you think I did? And I said, I, my guess is you went in and fluffed up the pillows and slept in your own bed for the first time. She says, no, I never even slept that whole night. I sat on the sofa in the living room and I watched the heaters, the middle of a, uh, a cold winter. I watched the thermostat go on and off, this little red light go on and off. She says, the whole time that I was raising my children, I heated our apartment with the kitchen oven. I knew every single night when I went to bed that I risked killing my children by heating that way, but it was the only heat I had. And so for me, having a house that had an automatic thermostat where I could see it turn on and off automatically was a thing of pure beauty and pure magic. And that says that when my grandchildren come, they can stay with me and I know that they will be safe. That meant something to me. The second thing I've learned, and this, this is the part that I'm afraid you may say is not directly relevant to business, but I think it is. I learned that suffering and self-sacrifice are the essences of servant leadership. Suffering and self-sacrifice. Now, no one seeks out suffering and self-sacrifice, but suffering has a way of finding us, whether we seek it out or not. Self-sacrifice is entirely different in that it is something that is chosen voluntarily out of love or compassion or some idealistic reason. I have talked to mothers, many of them in Durham, in some of the communities that you will visit, who face random and predatory violence in their unsafe neighborhoods every night. I visit with these mothers and they told me what they pray each night. They told me that they pray each night that their sons will live long enough to go to prison. And I looked at them and I said, that can't be your prayer. And the response to me is that there are some problems that can be solved with the passage of time, but dying is not one of them. And so I pray that my children will be able to go to prison, that they might come back out and have a real life after that. To me, that says something very serious. We live in an America, it really is, I used to give this speech before John Edwards started talking about it, about living in two Americas, one with wealth and choices and one with poverty and pessimism that is so real that the neighborhoods people live in have become killing fields. One of my best friends, who is this middle class person who also runs a nonprofit organization, a world, really a world leader in community development, two years ago, almost to this day, got a call that said, uh, he's, a, he's a black Muslim, said, you need to come home right now, and they wouldn't tell him what it was. So he drove home and found that his son had been murdered. To, to about 22 years old, his son was two years older than my son at the time, and they think it was for $60. 
And he said to me, he called me, and he says, you know, I raised my kid to go to college. He didn't quite make it in college, but I never taught him the toughness of being on the street, which is how, I, how he grew up. And he's devastated. His life will never be the same. Clearly, his sons will never be the same. There was nothing I could do except be there for him in just the simplest and quietest way I could. But I will say to you that self-sacrifice sometimes can heal wounds, not all wounds. I'll tell one more real-life story. Many years ago, with this same Newburn Bakery Company that I mentioned, I would drive every weekend to stay with the family that was the, really the motive force behind the bakery. This was a, 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 a working-class black family who had never had a white person live in their house, stay in their house ever, in their whole life. And every weekend I would drive there, and my story, which I'll get to if I have time and I'll skip if I don't, is I grew up in a predominantly black community on the south side of Greensboro. I drive down, and it's the middle of winter, and they have this central kerosene heater, one little standalone kerosene heater in the house, which whenever I was there all night long, it, would, it must have been 95 degrees. And I was thinking, you know, I would, had stripped down to my t-shirt, you know, it was, and I was thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe there's something different about black folks in heat. I mean, maybe there's something different, even though I thought I, I, I grew up in a different neighborhood. And after about six trips, six visits, I asked them, I said, do you think we might turn the heat down just a little bit? Because I felt like I might be being disrespectful. And you already know the ending of the story, right? You see it coming? They looked at me and they said, thank God. We thought there was something really strange about white folks and y'all couldn't hold heat. And so we've been he keeping the heat up because we've, we figured you'd freeze to death. Well, it was about a week later that I learned not only had they kept the heat up, and they were very poor, unemployed, but that they had gone each of those six weeks, they had gone the entire week with no heat at all so that when I was there on the weekend, there would be heat. Okay, now you think about how, what would I not do for that family? The self-sacrifice that they had, had made, you know, I didn't need the heat. They made a sacrifice for something I didn't even value. But the fact that they did it meant that I would walk hot coals to help them do anything they wanted to do. So my message here is that you, whether you're leading a nonprofit or you're leading a for-profit business, that the ability to choose a sacrifice that helps other people, not only is that the essence of happiness, but it will ultimately be the thing that gives you moral authority to actually lead. I think about the quote that I, I read from St. Augustine, and he said the following. He said, we should preach the gospel wherever we go and use words only when necessary. So here was a man with moral authority who knew that being there meant a whole lot more than just talking about a problem. So self-help grew. We became famous in our own little fishbowl. And five years ago, the world changed for us. I had a borrower who came in my office he said, Martin, I've tried to refinance my home loan for the last 10 years, and the company will not allow me to refinance my loan. And I looked at him, I said, you know, I'm a lawyer, not a very good one, but I just don't believe you. You know, that's not legal. Anyone can refinance their home loan when they want to. So I asked him to bring his paperwork in. He brought his paperwork to me, and I looked at the loan he had refinanced in 1989 from a 7% loan to a 14% loan. And the thing that was just dramatic, it was, it was a, his first home. His loan was, I think it was $21,000 at the time. And they charged him $15,000 in fees to refinance his loan. Okay, so he walked out not with a $21,000 loan at 14% interest, which would have been bad enough, but $21,000 plus $15,000, $36,000 loan at 14%, which he could never pay. He paid on that loan for 10 years. 
Had that been a self-help home loan, he would have completely paid off the loan and had $10,000 in his bank account. But instead, he still had $36,000 of outstanding balance. He was struggling to pay it, and it was about, his home was about to be foreclosed on. I called on his behalf, or got prepared to call the lender to see if we could refinance his loan. And the gentleman looked at me and he said, Martin, I have one more piece to tell you before you call. And this is a 50-year-old African-American man, had these tears that welled up in his eyes, and he looked at me and he said, the reason I can't lose this house is not just because I helped build it, which I did, but I have a nine-year-old daughter whose mother died three years ago. This house is the only connection, my, the only physical connection my daughter will ever have with her mother. And I just can't lose the house. I'm sitting here, you know, just about to bawl. And I get on the phone and call the company based in Dallas, Texas. How many good Texans we got here? Okay, so I'm picking on you for a second. And the woman got on the phone, and we talked for a while, and finally she said, I will not tell you the, the, the amount it would take to refinance this loan. After all, you're just a competitor trying to steal my customer. And I've got to tell you, I was always hot-headed as a kid. I was red-headed. I know that's hard to believe now. And something inside of me just snapped, and I told her, I said, you picked the wrong fight with the wrong person at the wrong time. If I have to chase you for the rest of my life, we will drive you out of the state of North Carolina. And they were the largest lender in North Carolina, particularly minority communities, 18,000 mortgage loans per year. And that became the middle of a move, and half of those loans, half of those 18,000 looked just like the one that I described to you. So t somewhere around nine to 10,000 families each year in one little state in North Carolina were losing their homes because of one bad guy lender who happened to be huge. So we put together a coalition that included, uh, it's never happened before or after in North Carolina, a coalition of the bankers, the credit unions who generally hate each other, the mortgage bankers, the home builders, the realtors, the activist groups, the housing groups, the elderly groups, civil rights groups, all together to pass legislation to say we're not going to have this kind of behavior in North Carolina. We passed the first anti-predatory lending law in the nation. There were uh, almost unanimous vote in both the Senate and the House to stop this kind of practice. You would think that I had totally destroyed the capitalist free market system from the reaction we got outside the state. Now, all of the groups inside the state said, we're proud of this. We've driven the bad guys out. But outside the state, it was that, my God, you have destroyed free markets forever. And there's a long story I can tell you about it. But basically, I have become public enemy number one, literally, in the nation for the finance companies that do mortgage loans across the nation. So I got angry, and I got angry in a way that I hadn't been since I was a teenager. And I'll tell you a little bit of my personal story just so you'll know why I do what I do. My father was this very strong Jesse Helms Republican. My mother had no politics except that she said, I have one duty in life, and that is to cancel your dad at every election. Whatever he votes, I vote the reverse. <laughs> So I tell people, if I seem confused politically, um, I come by it genetically. My father wanted his four sons to learn how to work, so he moved us to a rural neighborhood on the south side of Greensboro. What he didn't realize, I don't think he realized, at the time was that the neighborhood was 95% black. I grew up, all of my friends were young African-American kids playing basketball. That's what we did. And I remember as if it were yesterday, when I was 11 years old, I went to join the church. My friends played on a church football team. I was a nose man. Anybody who plays football, that's the meanest position on the field. And half of this church football team were kids from my neighborhood. The other half were from all over the city. My best friend and I decided somewhere in the middle of that year that we were going to join this church. We went down, and the minister was giving us an orientation sort of like this. You know, you're captive. You can't really get away. And after an hour, he's looking at me, he says, Martin, we really, we're so happy to have you join this church. I know your parents. This is going to be a great fit for you. It's going to be wonderful. 
And he looks over at my friend, and he says with great, with great compassion, he says, but you're not able to join this church because of the color of your skin. You can't join. And my little 11-year-old friend had these tears well up in his eyes, and I, you know, he, he called out to the minister. He says, but I'm just a kid. I, I'm, I'm just a kid. I, I'm just a kid. Well, I didn't join the church either. <laughs> my next experience or incident of growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood, this time it was high school. I was born in the year that Brown versus Board of Education was decided, 1954. Greensboro was the first city in the South to announce that it would comply with desegregations of, of its schools. It was actually the last, one of the very last cities to actually do so. Any other Greensboro folks here? I love Greensboro. So it was high school before there was desegregation and the first student who was to desegregate the high school that I went to was from my neighborhood. And in the second year, I think we now by that time had maybe 100 or 200 black students out of 1,800. My best friend who was this really charismatic young fellow came to me and he says, Martin, I want to run to be treasurer of the whole student body. And he says, you're well known, you've made good grades, everybody knows you, I want you to run as a ticket with me. And I'm thinking, calculating, okay, I run with a black kid, we've had fights in the halls, desegregation wasn't all that peaceful. I do this, I'm going to lose. But I realize that it is so much harder to ask someone to be an ally than it is to say yes, that I said, Okay, we'll do it. And we ran, and I'm convinced we won because of him, not because of me. My first and last exposure to elected politics. <laughs> this was a person that you knew in his presence would change the world. He might become president someday. He could speak eloquently, and there would be this charisma that you'd get tingles up and down your spine. And I knew that he would change the world someday, but that day never came because he was killed on a playground tutoring young kids behind my house in Greensboro. He was tutoring young, poor kids, and somebody from outside our neighborhood came and dropped a Derringer on the basketball court around these little kids. And my, my friend, he just, you know, he horsewhipped this guy. He said, what, you know, what the hell are you thinking? Bringing a gun in and around young kids. And this other teenager walked back to his car, never said a word, put bullets in the Derringer, came back, shot my friend in the heart, and killed him right on the playground. Never a word was said. So I remember thinking, when times are tough, and I have these people attacking, that I made this pledge when my friend died, that I would live the, net, the rest of my life as if I were living for the two of us, not just for the one of me. Now my friend was a fighter, so even when I started feeling weak, I knew that I couldn't give up because he would have never given up. So I want to conclude this part. We're going to have some questions, right? By saying that I feel like I have the absolute best job in America. It is true that I have had death threats from the Klan. It is true that I've had death threats from drug dealers. It is true that the payday lending industry nationally has said we deem you to be our number one enemy in the world along with the finance companies and that we will spend tens of millions of dollars if that's what it takes for us to destroy you personally. And I'm thinking, you know, that's, I've arrived. But I've had the privilege of working with literally thousands of people that I consider to be the ordinary heroes, that when they needed something very small, it wasn't a big thing, I was able to be there to help them start their bakery, get their first thermostat. And I've got to tell you, it is the greatest reward in the world. I'll never be rich in money terms, but it's the most amazing experience to be able to walk with people and share their struggle that you can imagine. I've had many of them tell me, and I think this is true, although it's embarrassing, that they say, Martin, we actually love you. About half the people I know say, we would stand up and take a bullet for you 
The other half say, could we provide the bullet? <laughs> so I guess my message is as you head out into business or into government or into nonprofits, the, 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 the hope that I have is that you will just be there for the little people. It might be in the most unobservable place that you can imagine. It's not grandiose, not an important, but just someday, some ordinary, unexpected day, you'll be able to change the world by a little action that very day by being there. And that will make the difference, and it's worth doing from an old fart uh, way down the road. So thank you for listening to me. I know we're going to have some questions, and uh, Duke's a great place. I hope you have fun. Thank you. much time we have for questions, but I hope you have something pragmatic in 10 minutes. I'm wondering uh, how many children you have and how much time you can Okay, well this is, I promised I really wasn't going to embarrass her, but my daughter is here. Carlin, you want to stand up? This is sort of the light of my life. My 18-year-old uh, is leaving as soon as we finish this to go to Wesleyan College in Connecticut, and we're driving up. I have two children, uh, and there are things that they have not received that had I chosen. I had people tell me when I was in high school, and I was one of these people that, you know, I was president of everything. Uh, I never made a B. You know, I was valedictorian of everything all the way through. And they said, you're going to make millions of dollars. They said, you are a money-making machine. <laughs> and I sort of, you know, my dad was this, you know, ornery, cantankerous businessman, and I thought he was probably right. And at self-help now, we have this salary cap, the maximum that anyone can earn at self-help. And we have 200 brilliant people, you know, many of whom who come from Duke and Yale and Harvard and all these different places. The maximum you can earn is $60,000 at self-help. So I have had to save, and people make fun of me. The, this Wall Street Journal article had a picture of my car, which has, is a 1992 Corsica, Chevrolet Corsica, with a cracked windshield. And the reporter, when he came down to visit, he just, I knew I, knew I was in trouble. You know, I took him out to dinner, and he looked at me and he says, you don't really drive this car, do you? I said, what, what's right? this is a great car. It never breaks down. He says, but the windshield is cracked. So, so what? It's cracked below the sight line. It doesn't bother me. What's the big... <laughs> so I have, I have kids, and for years, when they were very young, I refused to give speeches anywhere around the country. I wouldn't leave. I, my reputation was that I would never leave the borders of the state of North Carolina. And then all of a sudden, someone got this conference brochure that's, that sh showed me as the keynote speaker for a, for a conference in Hawaii. And they said, okay, Martin, now tell us about principles here. I now see what it takes to get you to come speak. It's got to be paradise, right? I said, you got it pretty much right. That's what it'll take. So my kids have not had the kind of money that my parents were able to provide. They haven't had new cars. They haven't had those things. And I'll let them speak for it. I think in the long run that it will have been better that they knew that their parents stood up for what they believed more than having that extra pair of jeans or that that's my belief no <laughs> she's she can't say any differently in this in this setting was that your question it's not incompatible with having family you sometimes get teased by your friends you know you're my father my father was convinced that i would be destroyed he grew up during the mccarthy era he says, anytime you try to do something good, and if you're outspoken about it, people will demonize you and attack you. And, and it's, it's just true. Uh, the question was, what about states that have supported IDA, individual development accounts? 
And really this is the same theme. It was the notion that families, if they have wealth, can make all kinds of changes and do great things without having to have these other social support systems. And my experience has been that the programs are so small, the IDA programs, what it does is it says, you, a, a low-income family, if you'll save $100 a month, we, some nonprofit or public agency or corporate agency, will match it either one or two to, two to one. So every $100 you put in, we'll put in $100. And we've done that as a method of saving down payment for a home loan. We think that the key to wealth for most families is buying a home, their first home. And it's really a very, very narrow path. Those of us who've been born, I mean, anyone who's here, no matter how poor your circumstances were, you're basically on a path of privilege. A lot of the kids I work with, they don't have that aspiration. Their aspiration, they don't even have the aspiration to live past 21. They have this fatalistic view that I will be killed before I reach the age of 21. They don't have that sense of saving. And we think that if you own, a, own something, own a home, that that is just an absolute rock that changes your whole psychology and allows you to have hope going forward. And, that, and that's the reason I got so pissed off at these predatory mortgage lenders, is I have given probably hundreds of speeches to tens of thousands of community people where I said to them, if you live by the rules, if you raise your family, if you work hard, you can make it in this society even if you happen to be born black, even if you were born disadvantaged. And so when I saw entire industries that targeted, they put their loans specifically in low-income black or Hispanic neighborhoods, and basically with the stroke of one pen, had stolen the entire wealth that a mother had built up over a whole lifetime of work and had intended to convey to her children, it just makes me absolutely crazy. And you can understand if it makes me crazy how the children of these families who come home and see their mother crying on the sidewalk because all their possessions have been put on the curb, the rage that, that emerges, it's not an irrational rage, it's pretty predictable. Okay, so the, the uh, two questions. The question was, uh, have we made loans outside the state of North Carolina, and what role have we had in seeding other organizations similar to self-help? Let me take the first one first, I mean the second one first. Uh, we learned what I call the Ford Foundation Peter Principle, that in our early years we had just this little modest success, I mean not enough to even, you know, not, not enough to even mention. But in our world it was enough to get written up on the front page of something. And all of a sudden, the Ford Foundation was sending hundreds of groups to come visit us. We felt like we were failing. We, we literally were doing program activities that we knew were not sustainable and wouldn't work. And all these folks from around the country were coming to, to model it. So it's what I call the, the Peter Principle. You get promoted to your minimal level of success, and then you never do anything else because you don't have any time. So way back when, we started something we call the Self-Help Institute that we do three times a year, and it was really self-protection. We have a two-day workshop that allow organizations from around the country to come and interact with our senior managers. And we've had somewhere between five and 10,000 organizations who have come to Durham to go through that two-day workshop. And our message to them generally is don't do it the way we did it. The real key is just start something. It's, like, it's more like a coral, coral reef than anything else. You start and then you build something organically that happens to fit in your environment that, that may not be the same boxes and same, I mean, we've got 45 corporations now, self-help does, all these different real estate projects. We've done a, a million square feet. We financed the American Tobacco uh, Campus, which you'll see, which is a, a incredible restoration of a Brownfields factory uh, in downtown Durham. Um, in terms of whether we stay inside the state, I used to always say that the essence of strategy for a nonprofit and for a business is not what you say yes to, it's what you say no to. It's having principles that tell you to say no. If you've reserved some energy, you'll find good things to do. It's really when you get off on, the, on something that shouldn't be done that you fritter your, your resources. So I tell you this with some, some humility that 
one of my first rules was that we would never, ever have a staff person outside the state of North Carolina. Uh, and in 19, I guess three years ago, we opened an office in DC that has 20 people. And we're looking to open a West Coast advocacy office that will probably have another 20 to 30 people because we just can't do the work, the policy work we want to do simply from North Carolina. So my message out of that is never say never. I mean, never uh, be careful. We do have a couple of programs. We finally learned after 10 or 15 years that we really had a formula. You could make home loans to poor families. And as Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton used to say, you know, we've created you know, 10 million jobs. And I'd say, yeah, but the people I work with, each one of them have three or four of them, and it's still barely enough to make it. So the, the, the goal for us was to realize this will work, but we're never going to be big enough to make a difference. We're just never going. We could be the biggest in our little goldfish bowl, but it doesn't make any difference. So we partnered with Bank of America, uh, those folks that I thought were the bad guys way back when, and I said to them, I said, I don't covet your money. What I covet is your distribution network. You can reach people in every little community all over the country. So with Wachovia uh, and Bank of America and National City, 15 of the largest 30 banks, we go to them and tell them, if you will make home loans to low wealth and minority single parents, we will take all the risk. You get all the credit. You get to earn a 1% fee and I'll take all the risk because we'll buy the loans. So we've done billions of dollars of financing in that way all across the country. So increasingly we're being drawn out of North Carolina, but that's still where our roots are. And Durham is our, I mean, Durham is the greatest city to learn sort of a multicultural family because we fight like hell. I mean, it's just the fight in this place you've ever seen. And that's, you know, it's like family. And I think if you need to learn how to build coalitions, if you can do it in Durham, you can do it anywhere. Yes. My inspiration to go to law school. Um, it's, pretty, it's pretty embarrassing. I, you know, I grew up in this black neighborhood. And I had the sense in the 1970s, which is when I finished college, that the only way <laughs> The only way you could accomplish anything is you had to overthrow these dominant institutions. I was convinced that the CIA was behind all these bad activities. This, you know, I was, I was pretty young. And, it, and in fact, they were in some places. Um, so, you know, we had this whole group of us, a whole college group, that we were going to go out and, and change the world in little ways. And some of them said, well, we we're going to go infiltrate the CIA. And I'm like, yeah, right. Let's, so my, my thought going to law school was that it would be a tool that we could use to fight for, as trite as it sounds, for freedom. I mean, we felt like if we could, could, rationalize, could make the economic system more fair, that we had this inflated self-image that that could actually be, as trite as it sounds now, the ingredients that saved a free market democracy. That without that sort of focus on bending towards fairness, I believe that the market economy will collapse eventually. I believe that. And so our little self-important, the very first grant, found, this is the part that's really embarrassing, that I wrote while I was still in graduate school, I sent to a foundation in North Carolina. And the title of the foundation proposal was, how, this was 1979, 80. So it was before the fall of the Iron Curtain or any of that. The title of my proposal was How to Reconcile Socialism and Capitalism. Okay, now anybody who sat on a private foundation or written a grant, I mean, I went into the office and the, the, the executive director of the foundation, they looked at me and they were doing everything they could to not laugh. They said, well, do you have a board? I said, no, we don't have a board yet. I just, we're just starting. Are there any people out there who need the services you claim to to present. I said, well, they, not yet, but they don't. I said, are you guys just cynical? I mean, what's your problem? This is going to work. Well, it was two or three years before anyone would give us any, any grant capital, but that was the, it was, it was pretty grandiose. And I'll tell you one more piece, and then you could, that same foundation I went back to two years, I kept trying to get funding from them. I was convinced that, you know, this was a big foundation in North Carolina. We're North Carolina-based. They needed to fund us. 
And I drove in, and I felt like I'd had this great meeting with the staff. Two years later, I had a board, I had people we were working with, the Klan had already threatened to kill me. I mean, I was, I was making, making progress. And I come back out of the office and go to my little Volkswagen Bug, and I look in, pat my, my pockets, as I always do, to see where my keys are. And there they are, inside the car, in the ignition, with all the doors locked. Okay, so here's a moral dilemma. What do you do? Break a window, save your pride, get the keys and drive off, or go back in the foundation where you think you finally made a good impression and say, uh, by the way, while I'm confident enough to run this organization, I can't get my keys out of my car. What would you do? What do you think I did? Swallow your pride. Who else? Break a window? I had already had my electricity turned off three times that year. There was no way in hell I was going to break that window. <laughs> so I went back in, and not only did I get their help, I borrowed the keys of the assistant director and took his car, drove back to Durham to get an extra set of keys, and came back. That guy became my greatest advocate. And I think it was that he was, I think he felt sorry for me. It's like, if I don't, <laughs> if I don't give him a grant, this, this kid may starve to death. So you get to funny places not always intending to. <laughs> okay. Thank you.